Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. Today I have the privilege of bringing the word that I'm so excited about. I believe that God has something specifically in store for you today at Cornerstone Church. We're going to be opening our Bibles to the scripture 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. It is a well-known passage of scripture. We're going to be talking about the Shunammite woman today. The Shunammite woman now, there is a strong chance that if you've been in church before, then you just heard me say the Shunammite woman. I've heard about the Shunammite woman like a hundred times before. Come on. Can't we talk about something else? I have learned everything that there is to know about the Shunammite woman. But I just want to encourage you to put that aside for just a moment. Put aside what you know about the story because I believe that God has something fresh for you today, that God wants to do something in your life more than just the knowledge of the story that you have. There is also a strong chance that you heard me say the Shunammite woman and you were like, the Shunammite woman? What is that? Who is that? I don't know nothing about the Shunammite woman. What kind of disease did this woman have? I don't know this Shunammite woman. And I just want you to know that you are in the right place today if you don't know anything about the Shunammite woman. This church was created, this church exists so that people who don't know anything about Jesus find resilient faith in him. And so we are so glad that you're here. If you've never heard the words, the Shunammite woman, you are in the right place. And I can speak on behalf of my wife and I and the team here at this church and just say that we are so glad that you are here so that we can learn about what Jesus did through this woman. We read this in 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to pick this up in verse number 8. It says this. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, One day Elisha went on to Shunem. That's why we call her the Shunemite woman, because she was from a small village named Shunem. It says, Where a wealthy woman lived who urged him, urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. This woman was from Shunem, and she is given no name. She, we don't know her name. All that we know about her really is that she was a wealthy woman. Other versions of the Bible says that she was a great woman. It says that she was a notable woman. And we know about her that she could cook. We know that this woman could throw down in the kitchen, much like my mother-in-law. This woman knew how to cook, and it was so good that Elisha made a habit of going to her house. This woman urged Elisha to join her along with her husband in her house because she wanted to cook, and Elisha enjoyed the food so much that he made a habit of going there. He might be in one place, and he needed to go to another place, and Shunem was nowhere near being on the journey, but he said, man, I gotta go get some more of that food. I gotta go get some more of that chicken pot pie. That stuff is just so good. That green bean casserole is just so good. Australia Day is getting ready to come up, and we eat these Australia burgers that are full of beets and pineapple and eggs on your burger, and I can't wait to eat one of them in just a couple weeks. And I know that we're fasting at the moment, but I just want to make sure that I find you 
so that you understand this woman was a good cook. You understand that she was good? You understand that she liked cooking, that Elisha enjoyed eating her food? It reminds me actually how often food is found in our relationships, so much so that it is really the beginning of my relationship with Meredith. I had been traveling around different places and I was getting ready to move back to Australia. Meredith was living in Australia at the time as a poor Bible college student. And my mom picked me up from the airport and as we were driving back to their house, she said to me, hey, I'm so glad that you are uh, moving back home for this very short season, uh, but I, am, I wanna let you know that I have cooked, or I'm getting ready to cook your favorite meal this evening. And I was like, that's awesome, chicken glory, it's my favorite food, I can't wait to eat. And she said, also, I'm not just going to cook your favorite meal, I've actually invited someone over so that they can enjoy dinner with us. All that my mom said to Meredith was, I'm getting ready to cook a home-cooked meal. And Meredith was like, that's it, I'm there. That's all I need. As a poor international Bible college student, there are few things that are better than when someone says to you, you wanna come over for a home-cooked meal? And so my mom invited Meredith over and to ensure that me moving back home after being at college was a very short season, she made sure that I met somebody on that first day that would encourage me to move back out of their home. <laughs> at least that's the story that we tell ourselves. And so food is found really, I don't know if you've thought about it like this, food is found at the beginning of our relationship. Food so often is found as a crucial part of our relationships. And this woman, this Shunammite woman, was a great woman. She was a wealthy woman. She was a notable woman. And this woman knew how to cook. She was hospitable. And Elisha loved to frequent their home. But earlier in this chapter, in chapter 4, we see that Elisha didn't just go to see this Shunammite woman who was great and notable and wealthy. Earlier in chapter 4, Elisha goes to a widow who has lost everything. She's lost her husband. She's getting ready to die that she is that poor. And what I love about it is that it tells me that Elisha is not just comfortable with the wealthy folk. Elisha is comfortable with the poor folk. Elisha has this deep conviction, this deep understanding that God wants to save the wealthy people and God wants to save the poor people. And it challenges me because it makes me think about how often, as Christians, our understanding of evangelism, our understanding of outreach is really limited to serving the poor people in our community. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I love our prison ministry. Y'all know that I love our prison ministry. I love going down to serve meals to people in homeless shelters. I love ensuring that everybody has access to financial resources. I love what we do for addiction recovery. I love all of these different things, but it challenges me because our understanding of outreach and evangelism shouldn't just be limited to the poor that are in our community. When was the last time that we decided to send a team of evangelists into Ottawa Hills? When was the last time that we decided to go into Sylvania or Perrysburg or you name whatever wealthy community is around this area? When was the last time that we decided to go into the richer neighborhoods instead of just going into the poor neighborhoods? Because when we want to spread the gospel, typically we go down to the homeless shelter and we've got our gospel tract and we give it to the homeless guy and we pray for them and that's good and that's fine, but that's just not complete. 
God wants to ensure that all are saved, not just the poor folk, but also the rich folk. Can I go a little bit deeper? What I love about this church is that we declare Jesus everywhere that we don't just declare Jesus in the poor places to the poor people, but we declare Jesus to the rich areas, to the rich people as well. We don't just declare Jesus to the black folk or to the white folk. We declare Jesus everywhere. We don't just declare Jesus over people who have addictions. We declare Jesus over people that are free right now. We declare Jesus everywhere in this church. Everywhere we declare Jesus. So what I love about this is that Elisha is comfortable with the poor people and the rich people. Elisha is comfortable reaching everyone, everywhere. And then we read in verse nine, it says, and she said to her husband, behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room for him on the roof with walls there for him and we'll put a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. This thing that we are doing, she said to her husband, this thing that we're doing is good, but this thing that we are doing is temporary. I wanna make sure that what we are doing, the generosity that we have, the service that we have, I wanna make sure that what we're doing is permanent, that it doesn't just stay as temporary. I don't just wanna make good food for this man, I wanna make sure that we are permanently placing ourselves in a place of service. That this is not just a temporary thing that we are doing because he seems to be coming by pretty often. He used to just come by like once or twice a year, but I think he really likes my chicken pot pie. And he seems to be coming by really, really often now. So I want to make sure that we are positioned permanently to be serving this man. And she knew that the way that she served Elisha was indirectly a service to God. And so... She has this vision of building an additional room on top of her house. The vision that God has given her is bigger than the room that she is currently in. The vision that God has given us for this church is bigger than the room that you are currently in. Whether you are here physically in person or whether you are joining online, the vision that God has for this house is bigger than the room that you are currently in. The promises that God has over your life are bigger than the room that you are currently in. Our vision for this house is not just to be full of spectators, but our vision for this house is to be full of resilient believers that are going after God every single day of the week, where we are passionate to see our community saved, where we are passionate to see our faith come alive, where we're not just limiting our worship experience to Sunday mornings, but our heart is to see resilient believers come alive I wanna make sure that you understand me clearly. I care more about how many people are participating in our fast, in our 21 days of prayer and fasting than how many people are currently in the room right now. I'm glad that you're here, I truly am. But what I wanna see is life transformation taking place. What I wanna see is your faith activated in your life. I wanna see people that are giving and sowing into the vision. I wanna see people that are serving with their time. We care more about people that are engaged in the mission than how many people are attending the service. We wanna see you engaged in what God is doing here through this church. Our goal for faith is not simply to know something. 
Our goal for our faith is to do something with what you know. Can we put uh, verse number nine back up on the screen? It says this, and she said to her husband, behold now, I know this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way, so let us make a small room. Because of what she knew, she wanted to do something. Because of what she knew, she wanted to do something. The goal of our faith is not just to know something. The goal of our faith is to do something with what you know. The goal of our faith is not just to attend a worship experience. The goal of our faith is to engage in the life of the church and the heart of this mission. And so this woman builds a room on top of her house because she has this vision for what God is wanting to do. And then in verse number 11, we continue. It says, one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, she is in the room, but Elisha speaks to Gehazi. And he says, now say to her, see that you have taken all this trouble for us. What can we do for you? Elisha is trying to repay this woman for her generosity. It's a good reminder that when someone does something for you, you should not take it for granted. We should not be people who are entitled. When someone does something for you, when someone gifts something to you, when someone serves you, we should make sure that we are trying to repay that person, that we're not taking it for granted. It's rude not to try and find a way to repay people. It's irresponsible to not try and find a way to repay people. Now, if they don't let us, then that's one thing, but it's entitlement if we don't try and find a way to repay people for the goodness that they have sowed into our lives. Don't take things for granted. Don't be those people. She was thinking about how she could do something for God, but what Elisha was thinking about was how he could do something for her. It's this beautiful understanding of generosity and gratitude and reciprocity all playing itself out in this story now. And so Elisha continues and he says, do you want me to speak to the king on your behalf? Do you want me to speak to the commander? Do you want me to speak to someone who is in a position? And she says, no, I'm good. I don't need your help. I'm good. I'm a, I'm a great woman. I don't know if you've heard. I'm a wealthy woman. I've got everything together. I'm fine. And so she leaves, and then the conversation between Elisha and Gehazi continues. And then in verse 14, it says, what then is to be done for her? This is Elisha saying to Gehazi, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son, and her husband is old. And so Elisha says to Gehazi, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Elisha is trying to find some way to serve this lady, some way to repay this lady. And she says, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I don't need your help. I'm good, truly, I'm good. How many people do you know in your life that are just like, they're fine. Like when you try and help them, when you try and do something for them, they're like, I'm good, I'm fine. 
don't know if you know people like this. I certainly know people like this that they're just like, I'm good. I've got my barrier up here. I'm independent. I'm good. I don't need your help. This was a, a fine woman. This woman was just like that. She was fine all the time, right? Her house said that she was fine. Her clothes said that she was fine. Her smell said that she was fine. But the thing that said that she was not fine was the thing that you could not see. And so often the thing that is not fine is the thing that is on the inside of us. And the thing that was on the inside of her was broken. She acted like she had no need, but the need that she had was on the inside of her. She had all this wealth, she had all this stuff, she had all this influence around that area, but what she needed, what she wanted, she wasn't able to get on her own behalf. She wasn't able to purchase it, her wealthy possessions weren't able to get it for her, her influence wasn't able to help the fact that she was barren on the inside of her womb. And there are some things that money cannot buy. There are some blessings that only God can give on the inside of your life that you cannot achieve for yourself. You can have a big family and you can still be lonely. You can have success in your job and you can still deal with insecurities. You can still have all kinds of issues even though you've got all your stuff together. You can feel fine, but in reality, you're not fine. And the response that this woman gives is really interesting to me. If someone came to me and they said, hey, I'm gonna prophesy over you that you are getting ready to get the thing that you can't give to yourself, if you're getting ready to receive the thing that you can't purchase for yourself, I don't know about y'all, but I would be ecstatic. I would be loud, I would celebrate. If someone came to Meredith and I and we weren't able to have kids, and they said to us, this time next year you will have a child, I would be like, thank you, Jesus, for the goodness in my life. I'm getting loud, not just because of this child, but I'm getting loud because you have heard my prayer. I'm celebrating you now because you are the God who sits high and looks low. You are the God that knows my needs. You are the God that hears my prayers. You are the God that is moved on my behalf. You are the God that is listening and embracing my needs and giving us what we're asking for. But this is not what the woman says. This is not how the woman responds. She says, I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need that. When Elisha prophesies to her, you will have a baby in your barren womb, she says, no. Don't make me want again. Don't make me dream again. Don't make me desire again. Don't make me hope again. Don't make me open that part that is on the inside of me that I had closed off. Don't make me wish that I had this child again, because if I do that, then I'm gonna to have to deal with disappointment again. Don't make me dream that dream again. Don't make me pray for that again. Don't make me believe that again. Because if I don't pray for it, then I'm good. What it tells me is that there are far too many people who are okay with what they don't have. There are far too many people who have adjusted to the dysfunction in their life. There are far too many people that have learned to cope with the limp that they have. There are far too many people who have learned to cover up the addiction that they are dealing with. 
There are far too many people who are okay with not having peace, who are okay with not having joy, who are okay with not having freedom. But this woman says, no. There are far too many people that have learned to give reasons and explanations for why they cannot get involved in church, why they can't get involved in serving. They have their reasons. You might have your reasons. Maybe you travel, and so you can't commit to a regular schedule. Maybe you've got kids, and so you can't figure out how to get the kids here and be serving at the same time. And so you've built up all these reasons for why you can't get involved and start volunteering and serving at the church. And I just wanna let you know, we are so excited to be opening our kids' ministry soon, but it is limited by our ability to recruit and to, to train available volunteers. We are so excited to be able to open our kids' ministry, but what we need is more hands that are able to do the work, more people that are able and available. And so I wanna encourage you, if you haven't gotten involved and started serving yet, this could be your opportunity to get involved. I wanna encourage you and challenge you as a quick plug to get involved in our kids' ministry because we're excited to be opening fully our kids' ministry soon, but it's limited on the ability for you to get involved. And so Jesus came to bring abundant life. Jesus came to bring healing. Jesus came to bring freedom. But when Elisha prophesies to this woman that a baby is going to enter her barren womb, she says, no. She says, no. But in spite of that, because Elisha prophesied it, because of the goodness of God, because he had faith to say it and speak it into existence, this woman gave birth to a child the next spring. You see, she thought that she was blessing God by building the room on top of her home, but in reality, God was just looking for an opportunity to bless her, to sow into her. And so then her son grows up, and one day he has this head pain, and it's during harvest season, so he goes out to his dad who was working in the fields, and he says, Dad, I've got this head issue, and like all good fathers, when their children come to them, his dad says, go find your mother. And so then the son goes to the mother, and, he, and the son's like, Mom, I'm dealing with this head issue. I don't know what's going on, and she holds him, and she embraces him, and then on her lap, her son dies. And this is a devastatingly sad moment in this story. It's a painful scene in this overall story. But what it tells me is that the same God that gives us the blessing is the same God that will allow us to experience the journey. It's the same God that will let us carry the burden. It's the same God that allows us to enjoy the mountaintop experience and the same God that will allow us to experience the valley moment as well. He's the same God that trusts you with the good thing and trusts you with the pain at the same time. He's the same God. But this woman is not done embracing her miracle just yet. Her son is dead on her lap. This is the promise from God that is now dead on her lap. And I guarantee you, in one of the times that Elisha had come and stayed at her home, she would have said, hey, tell me stories about what God has done in your life. Tell me stories about what you saw in the ministry of Elijah. 
And so then it would have come up in conversation one day sometime before that there was a woman at Zarephath who had a son who died and Elisha lay himself on top of this child and that child came back to life. And so this woman, instead of just looking at the dead thing that is in front of her, she doesn't start the burial procedure. She goes back to the place of promise. She takes her child, the dead body of her child, and she puts the child in the very room that Elisha prophesied that a child would enter her barren womb. She goes back to the place of promise and puts her child there. She doesn't start the burial procedure. Her focus is not on the dead child. Her focus is on the promise that God had over her life. And then she leaves that place and she goes and gets Elisha and she returns with Elisha and Elisha looks at the child and he lays down on top of that child just the same way that he had seen Elijah do it. And now that's a particularly weird thing to do. I know that we read about it in the Bible and sometimes we just keep turning the pages as we're reading the stories but that's a particularly weird thing to do, to have a dead person in front of you and then to lay your body down on top of that thing. And so I started thinking, why does it say that Elisha lays down on top of that dead thing? You have to think about it. You have to wonder why was he laying down on top of that dead thing? It doesn't seem like particularly the right thing to do. It doesn't seem like a proper thing to be doing. After all, it would have made him ceremonially unclean if he had laid down on top of this dead thing. The question is not why did he lay down on top of the dead thing. The question is how did he lay down on top of the dead thing? Verse 34 says this, that he laid down mouth to mouth, Eyes to eyes and hands to hands. He laid down with his eyes to his eyes, his mouth to his mouth, and his hands to his hands. He needed to put his mouth on his mouth so that he could speak life into that dead thing. He needed to make sure that he understood that there was the power of life and death in the power of his tongue and that he was going to prophesy life to the dead thing that, is on the in, that was laying right there in front of him. And just in the same way you might have a dead thing around you, you've got to change the way that you are speaking to that thing. We need to be people that declare life over the situation that is in front of you. Even though everyone around you might be noticing the dead thing, speaking about the dead thing that is around you, the dead business, the dead relationship, the dead career, whatever it is that is dead around you, we need to be people that speak life, prophesy life over the dead thing that is in front of us. And so Elisha, puts his mouth on his mouth. And then it says that he puts his eyes on his eyes because he had to have vision to see life coming back to the thing that was dead in front of him. He needed to see life returning. God has given believers the ability to see what is not yet there. God has given us the ability to see joy where there is no joy, to see restoration where there is no restoration, to see hope where there is no hope. God has given us the ability to see life and love where there is no life and where there is no love. God has given us the ability to see what is not yet there. And so he puts his eyes 
on that boy's eyes. And then he puts his hands on the boy's hands, it says. He needs to embrace this child. He's put his mouth there, he's put his eyes there, but he needs to put his hands on the boy's hands so that he can embrace the miracle, so that he can feel the life and the warmth enter back into this child. He wants to feel the miracle, embrace the miracle of what God is doing over this child in this very moment. And it challenges me, and I believe this is going to challenge you as well. How many times do we pray for somebody and have no idea if God is answering that prayer? We have no faith that God is actually going to do what we are asking him to do. We have enough faith to pray for it, but not enough pray to go back and ask, did God do it? We have not enough faith to see God is going to do this on your behalf. If someone says to us, hey, I'm dealing with this addiction, I'm dealing with this illness, I'm dealing with this burden, I'm dealing with this issue, we pray for the person and that's good. But where is our faith that says, I believe that God is doing something and I'm gonna hang on to this miracle until it comes to pass in your life. Elisha grabs a hold of this child and says, I wanna feel the miracle, I wanna feel the warmth enter back into this child. And so he puts his mouth on his mouth. He puts his eyes on his eyes and he puts his hands on his hands. And simply because of the goodness of God and the faith that this woman has and the faith that Elisha has, this child returns back to life. And this is the end of the story of the Shunammite woman. Well, actually, it's not quite the end of the Shunammite woman. This woman leaves the biblical narrative for four chapters, and then she returns in 2 Kings chapter 8. There is an experience where Elisha hears from God that there is going to be a famine in the land. And so he tells this woman, leave this place for seven years and then return. And so this woman who has been on a roller coaster journey, she has been on an experience where she was fine. You remember that? Where she was fine and then she wasn't fine and then she was fine and then she wasn't fine. Throughout this experience, this woman has learned how to receive the help from people, how to be dependent on what God is doing in her life. And so this woman leaves her home for seven years, and when she returns, she wants to get all her stuff back. And so she goes and sees the king. And in this beautiful illustration of biblical irony, this is exactly the thing that Elisha offers to her back in 2 Kings chapter 4. Seven years prior, Elisha had offered to speak to the king on her behalf. And back then, she said no. But now she knows that she needs the help of those that are around her. Now she knows that she can't just be fine. Now she knows that it is important that she expresses her need, that she requests help from people. Now she knows that when the attention and the light is on her, it's okay that people see that she is not just great, that she's not just wealthy, that she's not just notable, that people can see the true identity of who she is. And so this woman leaves for seven years and then she returns. And in the exact moment, it says in 2 Kings chapter 8, that she returns back to this place, she sees Gehazi speaking to the king. And the king has just asked Gehazi, Tell me about the great things that God did through the ministry of Elisha. 
And so Gehazi is saying to the king, there was once this woman in Shunem. And I saw God do a miraculous thing through this woman. She was barren, unable to have a child. And God ensured through a miracle that she experienced motherhood. And then that child died. And then I saw God do what only God could do, and he brought that child back to life. And this woman, throughout this experience, learned how to embrace her miracle. She learned how to understand what it was to have needs and to allow people to speak help into that barren place. This woman embraced her miracle. Matter of fact, that's that woman that is coming through the door right now in this beautiful, perfect orchestra that only God can organize. The woman walks into the place right as, as Gehazi is speaking on her behalf. And she confirms the story. And then the king does what she needs and restores everything back to this woman. This woman had no way of knowing what she was really doing when she was building the house with the extra story. She had no way of knowing what was really taking place when she started cooking for Elisha. She had no way of knowing what was really happening every time that she poured out the fact that God was really just looking for an opportunity to bless her. But it was her generosity that unlocked her miracle. As she made room for God, God performed a miracle in her life. And it leaves us with the question today, where do you need to make room for God? In what area of your life do you need to make space for God? Is it your time? Is it your finances? Is it your relationships? Is it your study? Where is it that you need to make room for God? I have always wanted to read through the entire Bible in a year, and then at the beginning of this year, some people on our team said, hey, rather than reading through the Bible in a year, let's read through the entire Bible in a month. It's called the Bible Shred, and my first response was, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's going to be like two hours per day. I can't do that. I don't have two hours to give to God every day. I've got to go to the office and work. I've got to make sure that I'm meeting and socializing with people. I've got to be a good dad. I've got to be a good husband. I don't have two hours that I can give to God every single day. But here we stand in the middle of this month, and I am still on track to read the entire Bible in 30 days because I decided to make sure that I was making room in my time for God. And I'm so proud to be leading this team of people that said, how about instead of just doing it over the course of this year, let's dedicate this first month to God, knowing that God will bless the rest of the year if we give him what is his up front. So where do we need to make room for God? Even if there's an area that is barren, give it to God. Even if there's an area that is broken, give it to God. Even if there's an area that is dead, give it to God. Because if it's barren, life can come to that thing. If it's broken, God can restore that thing. If it's dead, God can bring life to that thing. And we will see God do it 
over your life, just in the same way that he's done it over the person that is next to you, just in the same way that he's done it over the person that's in the chat with you right now. We will see God do it as you create space in your life for God to do what only God can do.